Say, wasn't it great to have Noah himself with us last week to tell us the story of the flood? That was a pretty cool uh, special guest we had. And uh, there's a couple things that, uh, that Noah had to say last week that really stood out to me that, uh, that I want to uh, reemphasize here. One was that God is not indifferent to the way that people live their lives. See, some people have this idea that God is, is just too big, too far out there. You know, I mean, think about it. God created the whole universe, the solar system, all these galaxies and all that stuff. Why should God care about the activities of people on earth? I mean, just look how big the universe is. God has a lot more important things to worry about than this small little place and little human existence. But the story of the flood proves that idea wrong. It shows that God very much cares that the people that he created were rebelling against him and perverting and distorting and wrecking his intentions for them. And as Noah told us last week, God has a plan and a purpose for humanity. He has a plan and a purpose for you. And when we fail to live up to that plan and purpose, God takes notice. And when human society became full of wickedness and sin and violence, God intervened and brought judgment on them. But the fact that God saved Noah and his family from the flood shows that God cares for humanity and his, his concern goes beyond just the overall direction of society and the overall uh, uh, way that, that humanity behaves. God is concerned even with the individual details of individual people's lives. Otherwise, he wouldn't have noticed or cared that Noah was different. But the Bible tells us in Genesis chapter 6, verse 8, it says that Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. God does not just treat everyone the same. This is the way people are, and this is the way I'm going to treat people. No, God says uh, that he's going to treat people according to their own Selves. Later on in the biblical story in Genesis, um, there's a story where Abraham is having a conversation with God, and God is telling Abraham, see those people over there? I'm going to bring judgment on those people because of their wickedness. And, uh, and Abraham knows God. And so he responds to God telling him that, and he says, will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? And of course, Abraham was correct. He, he knew God and he understood that God would not do that. God does not just say, they're all bad, that's it, I'm doing away with them. God sees individuals and God treats people as individuals, he not only cares about the large factors and things flowing through humanity, but he cares about single people. And that means that he cares about you. God sees you. 
and God knows you, and God wants you to know him. And Noah is just one of the many great examples of that in the Bible. When God saw that humanity had sunk to new lows of evil, he did not judge everyone. He saved Noah and his family. And of course, uh, Noah's day-to-day behavior was different from the people around him. Um, he was not as, as wicked and evil as, as those uh, who were living around him. But uh, it was really his faith and trust and obedience to God that made the difference for Noah. It wasn't that Noah's life was perfect and he never sinned and he never did anything wicked and evil. It was that he had that faith and trust and obedience in God. And so much so that his life was characterized by faith in God and living things God's way. When God gave Noah an instruction... Noah did it. That's one of the big emphases of the story. If you read through the the text of Noah's story, those last chapters there in Genesis, um, it tells us uh, many times God told Noah to do this, and then Noah did this. When God instructed Noah, he did it. And today we're going to pick up the story of Noah in uh, as they're coming out of the ark after the flood. And what happened next was another uh, important origin story that helps us to understand uh, God and ourselves and how people can relate to God. So let's pick it up in Genesis chapter 8 and verse 15, where it says, uh, Then God said to Noah, Come out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and their wives. Bring out every kind of living creature that is with you the birds and the animals and the creatures that move all along the ground so that they can multiply on the earth and be fruitful and increase in number on it. So Noah came out together with his sons and his wife and his son's wives and all the animals and all the creatures that move along the ground and all the birds, everything that moves on the land, came out of the ark, one kind after another. So you see there that the, the text is kind of repetitive even, to say, this is what God instructs Noah to do, and it gives detailed instructions, and then it says, and then this is what Noah did, and it repeats exactly the same thing that Noah did to obey the Lord. And that is a pretty big clue there as to why Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And if you want to find favor in the eyes of the Lord, here's your Uh, here's your instruction on how to do it. If God tells you to do something, you do it. Next verse here, it says, Then Noah built an altar to the Lord, and taking some of the clean animals and the clean birds, he sacrificed burnt offerings on it. See, uh, Noah is thankful to God for his deliverance from the judgment of the flood, and, uh, and so he worships God, and he gives his thanks to God and expresses his, his, uh, his, his relationship with God through offering these sacrifices on this altar. And his worship that he brings here, notice that it's not just, uh, it's, it's not only that he sings a song or says a prayer. He's offering a worship that actually costs him something. He's offering a worship that involves his labor and, 
and, uh, and things of value. It's a significant worship that he is bringing to God. And then in verse 21, it says, The Lord <clears throat> smelled the pleasing aroma and said in his heart, Never again will I curse the ground because of humans, even though every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood. And never again will I destroy all living creatures as I have done. See, God approves of the worship that Noah is offering here. Um, Noah obeys God's instructions, and Noah practices religion. He worships God. And God is not indifferent. God is concerned with Noah and his obedience and his worship. God smells the pleasing aroma of Noah's worship. And then God responds. And here he, he, he declares his intention that what has just happened will not become a repeated pattern in the uh, relationship between God and humanity. Because what, what has just happened here? What, 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 as the flood recedes and Noah comes out of the ark, what just happened? What happened was people grew more and more sinful, more and more wicked, until it finally got to a place where there was so much destruction, so much violence, so much rebellion, that God decided to start over. And he chose Noah to be a new Adam and was re rebooting humanity through Noah. But God says, even though every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood, he will not do this again. He will allow human sinfulness to exist on earth. And he will never again destroy everything in the way he did in the flood. Even if things get bad the way that they did then, and God knows that they will, he is not going to do that again. See, one of the whole things that this whole story um, teaches us is that we need more than just a fresh start. That's one of the things God is showing us here. He's showing us that, you know, sometimes we get the idea that if we could just get a second chance at life, we could do better, right? We could, uh, you know, if, if we could just um, uh, uh, have our, our, our sins forgiven, then we could stop sinning and, and be uh, better for, for the rest of our lives. But that was not true for humanity as a whole, as we see throughout the rest of the Bible, and it's not true for me, and it's not true for you. A second chance and a fresh start is not enough. If all Jesus offered us was to wash away all of our past sins and give us a fresh start in life, that would be very generous of him. It would be terrific, but it would not be enough. How long do you think you could go before you would mess it all up again? There were people in the history of Christianity who thought like this. They believed that you could be forgiven once. And that time of forgiveness was at your baptism. Um, so once you were baptized, all of your sins were gone and you were, you were right with God. However, any sins that you committed after that would be, uh, you would still be responsible for. You would not be forgiven a second time. So what did these people do? 
Well, they thought it through and they said, well, the smart thing to do is not to get baptized until right before you're going to die. And so they would wait until they got sick and felt like, okay, this is it. Better call the priest and I, I need to get. But they just did not understand the way that God works. They missed the point of the story of Noah. Because, see, the, the story of Noah shows us that a fresh start did not solve the problem of sin. As Noah himself put it when he was here last week, he said, something else was on the ark with us, the sin nature. And so after they came out of the ark, if you read on in the, in the, in the scripture here, it will show you how Adam and his sons continued to sin. And next week on our last origin story, we will see that things got very bad yet again uh, when the people started building the Tower of Babel, and we're going to deal with that story next week. And yeah, so the fresh start, doing away with everyone, keeping only the righteous few who found favor in the eyes of God did not solve the problem. Even though humanity was given a second chance here, Noah and his family did no better than Adam and Eve. See, we all need to be saved, not just from a flood or something that might end this life. We need to be saved from our sins. We need to be saved uh, in, in, in more than just a second chance. We need a God who says, even though every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood. And yet, he still does not give up on us. That's the God that we have. We have a God who is ready to forgive our sins today. And he's ready to forgive our sins again tomorrow. And he's ready to forgive those same stupid sins when we do them the next day. Now, I'm not saying here that we have a God who doesn't care about sin, right? That's pretty clear from the story of the flood, right? That God very much cares about sin. And yet, even though forgiveness is not a universal thing that God just hands out to everyone all the time, no matter what, he is ready to forgive. You can be like Noah, you can be a person who puts their faith in God, seeks to obey God's instructions, and finds favor in the eyes of God. And you can be saved from judgment by God. Not only judgments that happen in this life, but you can be saved at the final judgment. So now Noah and his family are out of the ark. He's offered this sacrifice on the altar. Um, and then in chapter 9, verse 1, it tells us this. Then God blessed Noah and his sons, saying to them, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. Does that sound familiar? It should. That's the same thing that God told Adam and Eve Back at the beginning, God is now, um, uh, he's not given up on sinful people. He still has a purpose for us. He still uh, wants to give us that fresh start. And, and more than just a fresh start, as we've been saying, but he, he gives us uh, 
more than a fresh start, but not less than that. Humanity is being given a new clean slate and a fresh start, just like God did with Noah and humanity here, where he's restarting the whole thing. Now, go out and do what I created you to do. He can do the same thing for us. He can do the same thing for you. You too can have a fresh start and God will still have a purpose and a meaning for your life and wants you to go out and do it. We can live according to God's plans for our lives. Will we do it perfectly all the time? No, but God is ready to forgive when we don't and our lives can be like Noah and be characterized by obedience to God and living according to God's plans and living according to God's ways. And so God takes the new humanity here, the, the Noah and his family, and he tells them, let's try this again. Be fruitful, increase in number and fill the earth. Go out and be my representatives in creation. Do my will all over the world. Care for the world. Uh, use its resources. Be the people of God. Create societies that live according to the ways of God. So does God think that Noah and his family are going to do this perfectly? No. Does God think that you are going to be perfect from here on out when he forgives you and gives you a fresh start? No, but he still does it. He still forgives. And he still commissions us to go out and do better next time. Just like he's doing with Noah here. A couple of verses down, it says in verse 8, Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, I now establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you and with every living creature that was with you, the birds and the livestock and the wild animals, all those who came out of the ark with you, every living creature on the earth. There's a huge origin story key word in that passage. The key word is covenant. This is the first time in the Bible that God declares that he is establishing a covenant with people. Um, a covenant is a special kind of a contract that defines a relationship between two parties. And, and, and this one um, is, is the first one, but there are several more covenants talked about in the Bible. And we're going to look at those uh, uh, very quickly in a few minutes here. But first, what are the contents of this covenant, this agreement that God is making between himself and and humanity, and more than just humanity, here he's making the agreement with all the created creatures that he has made. So how is he going to formulate or formalize his relationship with mankind? He says in verse 11, I establish my covenant with you. Never again will all life be destroyed by the waters of a flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant I am making between me and you and every living creature with you, a covenant for all generations to come. I have set my rainbow in the clouds, and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Whenever I bring clouds over the earth and the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will remember my covenant 
between me and you and all the living creatures of every kind. Never again will the waters become a flood to destroy all life. Whenever the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and all the living creatures of every kind on the earth. So God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant I have established between me and all the life on the earth. So God says here that he is, uh, uh, see, when he sees the rainbow, he will always remember his covenant that he is establishing now. And when it says that God's going to remember it, it isn't like he will have forgotten and be like reminded, oh yeah, I forgot about that. No, it just means that he will bring that to mind and think about it and will act according to this covenant. And so, um, so every time he sees the rainbow, he will once again keep his promise to humanity and to the whole world that a global judgment will not be a continuous cycle in our world. See, our relationship with God, what he's promising here is that it's not just going to be a, 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 a cycle in which sin builds up to a certain level and people become uh, bad enough and then God brings a judgment and wipes everybody out and saves a handful of them. Then they start over again and eventually sin gets bad again. God brings it and wipes it out again. That could happen, but God is saying, no, I'm not going to do that. He did that in the flood, and it was a, a one-time event. So this covenant rules out that kind of cycle of destruction and judgment that uh, could come on the earth. However, this covenant doesn't really offer us a solution to the problem of sin, uh, he, he does promise not to bring judgment like this again, but there is still the sin to be dealt with. Uh, if God's not going to judge it like this, what are we going to do? Starting over, we have seen, is not enough. So that's where the other covenants in the Bible come into play, you see. Um, this was the first one that God uh, laid out for humanity, but there are four more times in the Bible where God uh, makes covenants with people. And we're going to run through the next three pretty quickly here, and then we're going to talk about the last one in a little more detail. So the next covenant comes uh, in the Bible, just a few chapters, a few pages further on in, in Genesis, where God meets with Abraham. And the covenant is, uh, is not a worldwide covenant like this one in, um, in, with Noah here. Uh, in this one with Abraham, it's just a covenant that God makes with one man. And then with his descendants after him. And God promises Abraham first that he will become the father of several nations. And then secondly, that one of those nations would end up occupying an important land on the planet. A place that came to be known as the promised land. Because God promised Abraham here that his descendants uh, would live there. And then the third, this covenant promised Abraham that all the people on the earth would be blessed through his descendants, through his offspring. So because of that, even though this covenant was just with Abraham and with his descendants, because part of the promise is that all the nations of the world 
will be blessed through it, it is actually an important promise for all of us everywhere. And we will all be blessed through the fulfillment of that covenant. Now, the next covenant after uh, the one with Abraham uh, comes uh, some 500 years later or so when God calls uh, the, the, the people, uh, some of Abraham's descendants, to come up out of Egypt and move into the promised land. And by this time, Abraham's descendants living there was a whole nation full of people. A lot of people came up out of Egypt. And they went, uh, led by the Lord's servant Moses, they went out into the desert of Sinai, and they went to Mount Sinai, and there God met with Moses on the mountain and laid out for the people a very detailed covenant arrangement of how uh, the relationship would be between this new nation of Israel and God. And uh, God promised to make them his own treasured possession, a holy set-apart nation. He would personally dwell in their midst and bring them into the promised land. He would be their God. They would be his people. And they would be a kingdom of priests that would mediate God's goodness and glory to all the nations around them. And God gave the people a lot of information about his will for their lives as the chosen people of God. He gave them detailed instructions about how to worship him through religious festivals and sacrifices and priests. And he gave civil laws to govern their nation. The Ten Commandments are the most famous part of this, uh, this covenant that God made at Mount Sinai. And then if the people followed God's ways, they would dwell in the land and be God's representatives to the rest of the world. And the world would see how God would bless a people who are characterized by obedience to God and righteousness. But this was a conditional covenant. Unlike God's promise to Noah or his promises to Abraham, uh, this covenant included blessings if the people kept their part of the arrangement and did the things that God required of them, but it also included curses if the people failed to keep their part of the covenant. And the greatest curse was that God uh, warned his people of that there would be an invasion from foreign armies if they failed to keep the covenant. And, and the ultimate thing was, if you really fail to keep the covenant, the invading armies will come and they will kick you out of the land and you will no longer uh, be in the promised land and you will go into exile. Um, and of course, over the following centuries, the people of Israel had a lot of ups and downs trying to keep the covenant. And sometimes foreign armies came and attacked them and, and God brought judgment and then God would rescue them and, and they would turn back to God. But they could never consistently live up to what God expected from his people. Something more was needed. And so uh, God made another covenant with a man that the Bible calls the man after God's own heart. This was King David, who was a godly man who worshipped God with his whole heart and sought to follow his ways. 
And yet the Bible is not shy to point out several times when David sinned in huge ways, including adultery and murder. But he was also a model of repentance and confession and received forgiveness when he did fall into sin. He was a man who tried to follow God, failed, sometimes in big ways, and yet was chosen by God to be the recipient of the next big covenant. Now, in this covenant, uh, the one that God made with David, God promised that after he died, his son would rule on the throne in his place and that he would have a son on the throne for eternity. The first part, that's fairly normal. That's uh, what a lot of kings kind of would expect, actually, is that when I die, my son will rule in my place. Um, nice for God to promise that, but that's not a, uh, an out-of-the-ordinary thing. But the, the next part, though, eternity. That's a long time. And God is very clear with that point. He says, your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. And, and a big part of what David and his descendants were to do as kings was to lead the nation to do a better job of living up, uh, living as the covenant people of God. With godly leadership, the people... Uh, had a better chance to live up to the covenant and to do the things that God wanted from them. But as we read the Bible, we see in the history of these people, what happens is that the kings that come after David, all of his sons and grandsons and all those, um, they have a very mixed record of leading the people in a godly way. Some of them did really well and the nation thrived and, uh, and they, they worshiped God and God blessed them. But some of those kings led the people astray and brought the curse of God on the nation. So this succession of kings did not solve the problem of sin either. But there was a hint in this covenant that there was something more to God's plan than just good human leadership. That eternal part of the promise. How was that going to happen? Especially when some centuries later it became clear that the people were not going to keep the covenant and the ultimate curse being conquered and exiled from the land of promise came to pass. And in those days when, when the, the Babylonians were coming to conquer Jerusalem, there was a prophet named Jeremiah. And uh, in those days, Jeremiah saw that this was coming. God revealed to him um, many things, but also saw that the exile was coming. And then to Jeremiah, God revealed the final stage in this series of covenants that he had made with the people. So in Jeremiah chapter 31... It says, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. 
It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel. After that time, declares the Lord, I will put my law in their minds, and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. And then he says, For I will forgive their wickedness, and I will remember their sins no more. And that promise of a new covenant lasted for some centuries, actually, after that. People were waiting for this new covenant to come. And then came Jesus. And, uh, and at the Last Supper, when Jesus was sitting with his 12 chosen disciples, um, initiating what, what we're going to do in a few minutes here, initiating the communion service, um, this is what Jesus, uh, Jesus said. He, he revealed that he himself was the fulfillment of that new covenant that Jeremiah prophesied about. Jesus said this, he said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. You see, Jesus was the son of David, the descendant of Abraham, who would rule for eternity on God's throne over the people of God. He would bring God's blessing to all nations. He was the fulfillment of all of these covenants. He would lead not only by example, like David did, but actually by providing the means for people to be saved from their sins through the blood that was being symbolized by that cup that he was talking about at that moment. See, this, this, this new covenant... This is what it is. It is this new formal arrangement between God and people that can actually solve the problem of sin. Uh, the, the problem that the flood and all those other things could not do, this covenant can. Second chances, detailed guidelines for life, uh, godly leadership, none of that had successfully solved the problem. But now, Jesus deals with the problem in a decisive way. He is God in flesh come to satisfy the need that was created back in that origin story of sin and death and suffering when we saw that Adam and Eve chose their own wisdom and chose to rebel against God. And all those other covenants and dealings between God and men have been leading up to this. This was the moment. Jesus' death on the cross as a substitutionary sacrifice. He was dying in our place for our sins. And that was what made the final covenant possible. And now the new covenant says this. The new covenant says, put your faith in Jesus Trust his payment as the total payment for your rebellion against God and your failure to live in justice and righteousness. Admit your need for him. 
Put no trust in your own ability to do what is needed. And when you surrender to him and his payment as your only claim on God's forgiveness, God has promised to wipe your slate clean for all eternity. All of our sins are forgiven. Sins that we have committed in the past, sins that we will commit in the future. Jesus paid it all. All of our failures are washed away by Jesus' blood. Jesus summarized this uh, whole arrangement himself in one of the most famous verses in the Bible, and then a couple more verses uh, beyond that. John 3.16, here it is. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. So we see the offer of salvation is there. The ark is there to get in. You can be saved from God's judgment. But not everyone will be saved. Not everyone gets in the ark. It's very clear here what Jesus taught us. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. However, whoever believes in him is not condemned. Whoever does not believe stands condemned. We must put our trust and our faith in Jesus to deal with the problem of sin that all those other things could never do. And then God will give you a fresh start in life, but he'll give you more than that. He'll give you forgiveness for your past, your present, and your future. I invite you, if you've never done that, I invite you to do it today. Come and find me. Come and find Pastor Mike or one of the other uh, people in the church that you know and talk to us about it. And we'd love to help you uh, understand more of what you need to do to put your faith in Jesus today. But now let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we admit that uh, we did not deserve to be saved but your love and your grace are greater than our sin. And so you offer us salvation. You offer us a new life full of purpose and meaning and righteousness. Lord, we thank you and we praise you for that. And we offer now our worship. Amen.